Do you invest your money strictly in stocks and bonds? If so, it's time to change that. Welcome to Approach Investing Differently with me, Stephen Rosen from Hightower Bethesda. I've been advising clients for over 20 years on how to invest in alternative investments, and I'll explain why you should dedicate a percentage of your investable assets to hedge funds, private equity, and real estate in order to maximize returns and create a more efficient investment portfolio. Now, on to the show. In the last episode of his podcast, Stephen Rosen talked about how and why Hightower Bethesda invests in real estate, as well as some of the different segments one can invest in. This time around, he goes into more depth on one such segment, income-producing real estate, and how it works in a portfolio. I'm Patrice Sikora. So, Stephen, can you first talk about the different types of income-producing real estate? Sure. Um there's probably well more than the ones that I'll probably mention, but these are the the general ones that we like to focus on. And thanks again for hosting our podcast and to our listeners, thanks for joining us. Um, so the main f- segments that we traditionally focus on would be multifamily housing, um, triple net lease, um, which has a few different pieces within it, self-storage facilities. Um, then there's manufactured home parks, uh, which don't sound as bad as it seems. Um, <laughs> and then office buildings. Of course, there's things um, such as strip malls and, and even larger malls and things of that nature. Uh, but we generally, we, we generally try to stay away from retail and commercial um, strip mall type situations as there's just a lot of general volatility. There's high cost to those things, um, not as predictable Mm -hmm. as we like. And so when we do reinvest, when we do invest in real estate, our general goals are high levels of predictability, steady cash flows, and limited risks. I got to tell you, where I am, the self-storage facilities have just exploded, the construction on those. It's everywhere, actually, Um, not just where you are. People have a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. and, and one of the reasons why I also, I, I think it's a popular uh, place to invest is unfortunately, and this goes with things like multi-housing, multi-family housing, which others might call workforce housing. Um, if you go a little bit lower on the scale, as far as the ratings are concerned, manufactured home parks, self-storage facilities, the themes that those have in common is an ability to actually withstand an economic downfall because what you're generally doing in those scenarios is capturing people or having the ability to capture people who need to downsize. So for example, self-storage, um, you know, Bob and Amy Smith own a really nice large house. Unfortunately, they come on financially hard times um, and they have to sell that large house they have and they need to go rent or buy a smaller house. They're hopeful that things get better at a later point in time. They've got a lot of stuff. Um, They don't want to sell the stuff and they need to go get a storage unit to store it. Well, there's an example of an economic downturn, yet someone's capturing that issue. Um, You take a look at the multifamily housing sector. Um, traditionally, we like the what we would call the B and C multifamily housing. Well, what's nice about that? Well, it's nice is, again, similar to Bob and Amy Smith, who had to sell their house. Um, if they have to go rent somewhere, they're going to go rent in an apartment somewhere if they don't end up purchasing a smaller house. 
And if they have to sell their house, they're unlikely to go to what we would call class A level rental buildings. They're going to downsize. They're going to cut costs. Well, your B and C multifamily housing, which is very expensive to replace. So there's not a lot of it. And that has another demand benefit to it. But they're there to capture Bob and Amy as they unfortunately have to downsize. And so there's a tenant there to fill any potential vacancies that are there. Um, Same thing with manufactured home parks. These are mobile homes that people like to think about, not trailer parks, but actually mobile home parks um, where people have very nice, you know, homes that they actually own. The people own those homes. And what they do is they basically rent the pad that these homes sit on. Well, unfortunately, it's very expensive to move those homes. And so most people end up weathering the storm. They're just paying rent on the pad that they have. And God forbid they do get into some type of problems and have to sell their home. Someone else due to this economic downturn might be looking to downsize as well and maybe fill that vacancy and purchase that home and continue the rent payments there. And so all these things are defensive in nature. They don't require a massive booming economy. And therefore, we find ourselves in a position where we can get some good solid income. We don't have to worry about losing money. Again, you can lose money, but it's not a large fear of ours, particularly on a larger scale. And it's very much defensive in nature. And that's one of the reasons why you know we're big fans of this type of income-producing real estate that we're talking about. Makes total sense, like a trickle-down effect almost. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. So why do you like income-producing real estate? Well, we've lived in a world of late where interest rates have been exceptionally low, Um If we take a look prior to the time that we're living in right now, we had seen interest rates on maybe a 10-year treasury at one, one and a half percent. That's not a very attractive return because we've also had a very strong economy. Corporate bonds um, also had very little income to be generated there. And so real estate generally, generally produces a multiple of income relative to what corporate and treasury bonds create. And so we find ourselves in a position whereby we can increase our income dramatically. We own an asset, by the way, and that asset has a history of actually increasing in value. Bonds don't increase in value. So we have more income than a bond. We have the potential for that property to increase in value why wouldn't we want that relative to owning a corporate bond? And because in most of these instances, we're seeing incomes rise because leases are generally long-term leases, particularly on the, on the corporate side. And our, our single net lease tenant buildings that we like, those are generally long-term leases that get signed 10 to 20 years. There's whether it be an inflation kicker or just an annual kicker for rates to go higher. So our income increases. Rents, as we see, most people have a year-to-year lease. Maybe you sign a two-year lease after which traditionally that gets increased. And if you have a um, a tenant that leaves and a new tenant that comes in, historically speaking, that rent then increases even more. And that's what we're seeing uh, a lot across the country right now. And so we really like the fact that you just continually get a nice income stream with an ability for it to increase. And what that does is it offsets some of the economic issues, particularly what we're seeing in today's world, 
which is rising interest rates and inflation. And those are historically not fantastic for real estate because the higher the interest rate environment you have, particularly if you're coming from a lower interest rate, it traditionally does negatively impact the value of real estate unless you have income-producing real estate where that cash flow is consistently increasing. And so that increase in cash flow can offset, let's say, the multiple that someone's looking to purchase a building for. And so that from our standpoint, that's why we like it. It's defensive in nature. It works in pretty much most um, economic environments. And again, I come back to the same thing. We also have a hard asset at the end of the day that if somebody were to um, default on a lease or you end up with some form of you know mass exodus of tenants for any reason, at the end of the day, you still have a hard asset and you can always sell that asset. Unlike a bond where, God forbid, a company went bankrupt um, and you're a bondholder, depending upon where you are on the scale, you're going to get you know, cents on the dollar relative to what your investment was, much better off in real estate. You just have to be able to handle the illiquidity. And that is where portfolio construction and all the things that we do um, on top of just figuring out where the investments are that we want to uh, place our clients' money in. Um, that's where understanding how to construct that portfolio is very important. I'm curious, you, you've been talking about the default rates and income predictability. With retail having gone such through such a, a rough time, one thing you did not mention under your areas of interest were shopping malls. Correct. Um, retail is not something that we traditionally ever focus on. Shopping malls, not something that we're highly interested in. Um, we don't have managers who uh, and funds that we invest in that focus on those segments of the market. Uh, it, it's just not something that is very predictable to your point, right. very sensitive to economic downturns. And so that's one of the things that we have historically shied away from. I will say our, our clients would traditionally have some, what we would call retail exposure in certain segments that would primarily come from our triple net lease space. Okay, so in the triple net lease space, what you have is a single building with a single tenant. A lot of times it could be a CVS or a Walgreens, could be as simple as a McDonald's or a Burger King. Um, but it also ends up in many instances being uh, what we would look at as last mile distribution centers for supermarket chains, for Amazon, other big box stores, um, people who are just trying to enhance the logistics of delivery. And so in those instances, you might get some retail exposure, but in general, you're talking about 10 to 20-year leases that are signed with exceptionally strong and big companies. And we're not really worrying about foot traffic in a mall. Mm -hmm. I don't know too many people who have seen a CVS or a Walgreens go out of business nearby. Um, the worst case scenario we've seen is maybe particularly when um, Rite Aid was purchased by Walgreens, you did happen to see some um, overlap in where they had stores. There was actually one uh, right by where I live. Um, and there happens to be a, a vacant storefront in a strip mall, by the way, um, that is currently not being utilized. Um, but that's not a triple net lease. That's mm -hmm. a tenant inside a larger um, strip property. Um, so 
That's one of the reasons why we like the triple net lease space is because you end up becoming essentially a creditor to that company because that is exactly what a lease is. It's a credit obligation of a company. Um, You are below bondholders, but in general, if at the end of the day, a company is going to uh, go bankrupt, you're going to lose money. And I come back and say, well, at least we have a building to support that. Um, So again, it comes down to credit work by the analysts on the funds that we are looking at and investing in. And we think, again, not to harp on it, defense, defense, defense. And if we can get a steady cash flow, generally ranging between 6 and increasing to 10 to 11%, uh, particularly in the environment that we've lived in over the last um, you know, 10 plus years, I, I think everyone becomes very comfortable with that strategy. And if we can add on a couple of percentage points of growth, because as the income increases, that increases the value of the property, everyone's very happy at the end of the day. I would think so. 10 to 16%, I would think so. <laughs> now, how do you invest in these properties? Do you go public? Do you use private? Good question. Um, the answer is only private. We do have funds that uh, are structured a little bit differently than others, whereby um, it's a more of a public fund, but it's not publicly traded on any stock exchange. So we don't have a, a daily value valuation update. Mm-hmm whereby there could be a premium or a discount relative to the net asset value of the properties that are um, in, the, in the portfolio. That, that would be a publicly traded REIT. We mentioned on the last podcast that that is just something that we avoid at all costs. As I was explaining to a potential client uh, yesterday in a meeting, publicly traded REITs in our eyes have definitely just become another um, investment, investment segment of the stock market and has become exceptionally volatile. And its correlation to publicly traded equities is much higher than it used to be uh, when people were really attracted to it. So we really try to avoid the public space. We prefer much more the private space. Again, we'll have funds where we'll invest clients' money in. We'll be able to put all of that money to work at one point in time. They're very diversified portfolios generally focused on income. There could be some growth or development that are in there, but those are very large, very balanced portfolios. Primarily, what we like to do is work hand-in-hand with private investment companies where we will commit a certain amount of capital to a fund. And as they purchase properties, they will then call our clients' capital and our clients actually own that building. They can walk down the street, and they can look at the building that they own. They can touch the building that they own. <laughs> they may only own two bricks of that building, but they it's own those. Mine. It's theirs, and they own those two bricks. And they get the income from those two bricks. And when that building is sold, they get the value of those two bricks at the end of the day. And so, again, from our standpoint, it creates flexibility. Uh, it creates a timing aspect whereby when you commit to these funds, you're generally committing to these funds to invest over you know, maybe a 36 to 48-month period. So you get the benefit of investing over the course of time. You're not putting all your money to work at once. There's always going to be peaks and valleys in any market cycle. 
And so what you get there is some dollar cost averaging based upon the world you live in. And the same thing applies when you sell. Sometimes they'll sell at the peak. Sometimes they won't sell at the peak. But as long as we get a great return or a good return from those investor investments, we're super happy um, from that standpoint. Stephen, this has been a great discussion. Is there any point we uh, have not yet discussed you'd want to bring up? kind of think we covered most everything. I think we did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think this is going to be one of our shorter podcasts, but I think it's very <laughs> concentrated with information. I just think at the end of the day, I, it's very important from our standpoint that clients understand the benefits of real estate investing. I think that some people do they hear from their friends, they should do it. They hear from their families, they should do it. They hear from their advisors, they should do it. Um, don't be scared away by the illiquidity of real estate. Again, as with our hedge funds, and we're going to talk about private equity in, in, in another episode or two, illiquidity is your friend and embrace it. Make sure from a portfolio construction standpoint, you understand where you need liquidity and how much illiquidity you can handle. Everyone is different. Traditionally speaking, clients on the younger side who are working are cash flow positive have some savings on a day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year basis, those people can generally handle more illiquidity than they think because they don't need that money to live on a day-to-day basis. People who are in retirement, they may not be able to handle as much illiquidity, but also depends upon their net worth. Let's be candid. If you've got $20 million and you're an ultra-high net worth investor, I'm pretty confident you can handle a lot of illiquidity. (laughs) You don't need all of that money. And so the benefit of having this illiquidity comes in terms of stability of returns, lack of a drawdown. Okay, we're about to host a, a mid year review for our alternatives portfolio. And we're going to talk about the returns of our different segments our hedge funds, our private equity, and our real estate, and give everybody a sense of what the expectations were, how all of the funds performed. Did they perform in line with our expectations? And if they did, why do we have such expectations? And I think it's very important for all clients and potential clients and all investors out there to understand why you incorporate all of these strategies into your portfolio, what the value they can bring to you. And as I said, again, don't be scared of illiquidity. Mm -hmm. It is your friend at the times when you need it most. And that traditionally is when markets are going sideways. The volatility is dramatically different. The downside of protection is dramatically different, and it prevents you from selling at inopportune times. Make rational decisions, everybody, not emotional ones. That's exactly it. And you talk about that in the podcast just before this one, too. Uh, so it, it's very, very important to remember. Illiquidity I, I, is your friend. I, I talk about that in every meeting I have. <laughs> well, Stephen, how can listeners reach you? As always, we tell people the best place to start is our website, www.hightowerbethesda.com. You can see all of our newsletters, any blogs that have been written, any podcasts that we are running. You can, depending upon when you're listening to this, you can probably catch the replay of the alternative investments review that we're going to be hosting, find out information about our investment strategies. And of course, there's always a way to contact us through there, whether by email or phone. Follow or subscribe to this podcast, share with others, and enjoy. I'm Patrice Sikora, and thanks so much for being with us. 
Thank you for listening to Approach Investing Differently. Don't forget to follow the podcast to be notified whenever a new episode is released. Hightower Bethesda is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Bethesda and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Hightower Bethesda and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.